Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June the 25th, 2012, and this is episode 929 of the Survival Podcast. And what that means, guys, is that we are just a, a few days away from the end of the month, and that means that we're just a few days away from being officially 50% through with 2012. And I'm asking you, as I do from time to time, just to kind of give you a wake-up call and a gut check, are you working and have you succeeded in improving your personal liberty and independence in 2012 thus far? If you have not done so, you've lost half of the year at this point. So I hope you're working for it. I hope you're improving your self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and individual liberty on a daily basis. Because here's the secret, no one's going to do it for you. It's up to you to do it for yourself. And for your family. Today is Monday, and that means it's time for a listener feedback show. We kind of got skipped around a little bit. Jeff Lawton came in, did an interview, threw me off. I forgot an interview by Tim Glantz that we ran on Friday. It was a great interview. And uh, I ran that on Friday because I felt terrible uh, that Tim had come and done that interview. And it had been like, you know, four or five days and it hadn't run yet. And, you know, I felt like, man, I owe it to him. So that's why I preempted Friday's show. Today we're going to do the listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You put question for Jack, article for Jack, comment for Jack, something like that in the subject line. Whatever, as long as it's one word followed by four Jack, trust me, I'll get to it and scan it. I get you know hundreds of these a day now, so uh, I probably get about 1% of them on the air. But the more people that send me something, the more likely I am to cover that story. I've got one in particular we're going to lead off with today that's really going to fill that niche. I mean... Uh, the word, the, I've heard people like jokingly say it's a kabillion, like a billion, but a kabillion, whatever that is. And that's how I feel. I feel like a kabillion of you guys sent me the leadoff story today. Some of you will probably be able to guess what it is, and uh, some of you won't, and you'll find out here in just a moment after we take care of our sponsors in our housekeeping segment at the beginning of the episode like we always do. Episode uh, 929 today is sponsored by number one sponsor of the day, the Free State Project. Did you know you can vote with your feet? Yep, you can vote with your feet by moving to New Hampshire and becoming a member of the Free State Project, which is designed to make New Hampshire the most liberty-oriented state in the country. They've come a long way, but they've got a long way to go. They're looking to get 10,000 people to pledge to make the move. Over a 1,000 have already pledged and made the move, and I think about another 1,000 have pledged to make the move when they hit to no- the number of 10,000. So I guess they're about 20% of the pledge goal and 10% of the actual move. And over a decade it took to get that far, and I think they're reaching a critical mass because people are starting to pay attention to what they're doing. And uh, you can vote with your feet and move up there with them. And i got to tell you, after being up there at the Liberty Forum as a speaker for them, uh, I personally just decided it's not in the cards for us to move up there, but I really like what they're doing, and I support what they're doing. So I gave them a free year of sponsorship on the Survival Podcast, Uh, removed a sponsor that really wasn't doing anything for the community, Gave up the revenue and did that for them. And that that's, should tell you something. I really believe in it. It also means that even if you're not going to move to New Hampshire, that I believe, and I, hopefully that will help you understand the same thing, that what they're doing is important for all of us. 
So you can support them. If you can think of a way to support the Free State Project, do it, whether you can throw them a couple bucks in a donation or maybe just blog about them. A lot of you guys have blogs. How about everybody take uh, this week as blog about the Free State Project week, and if you get in touch with Carla Greco, I'm sure she'll help you out. She's the president. She's been on the show. And let's just let people know that it exists. That would be a great way to help out if you can't do it financially or go there yourself. And every blog post really counts for something. So consider doing that today. Next up today, Harvest Eating with the awesome Keith Snow. Uh, chef Keith Snow, I should say. Give him his proper title as chef because he is a classically trained chef that served at some pretty awesome restaurants. But now he's in business for himself. He's got his own cooking show on Royal Free Delivery TV. And he makes some really awesome spices. And the big thing is he's also a prepper. He's a homesteader. And he teaches you how to cook seasonally and locally, and he's been really grateful for the great feedback and support he's gotten from the Survival Podcast uh, audience. And he is always really grateful in his email correspondence to me for what the community has done by supporting him and his work. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Check out the new low and slow competition barbecue seasoning that's rapidly kind of coming up and competing with the Montreal steak is my favorite seasoning. I had... Uh, a guest last night, an audience member who was at ZombieCon and came back through Arkansas on his way back to Tennessee, which really isn't on the way, and came and had dinner with us and a few drinks. I shared a bit of scotch with him, and I made uh, I made some awesome steaks with the uh, with the Montreal steak seasoning. It's the best piece of meat he'd eaten in a long time. So it's not just Jack approved; it's listener approved as well. Next up, remember, you can get some really cool copper medallions at tspcopper.com. Spread all types of really cool messages. It is official AOCS barter currency, and it's a really affordable way to add copper as a small part of your metal portfolio. Check it out today, tspcopper.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get discounts to over 32 vendors. Uh, and you will be supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Real quick reminder, not every sponsor does an MSB discount, and not every discount vendor in the MSB is a sponsor. There's 12 sponsors, right, but there's 32 discount vendors. That would tell you right there that there's many people doing a discount that are not sponsors. Some sponsors, due to their, their business operations, just don't have the margin to offer a discount or for one reason or another, there's a complication that prevents them from doing it. Some of it's corporate policy level stuff about doing exclusive products, and I don't pressure them. I simply make it an offer because I've had people email me, "Where's you know, where's so and so's discount? I don't see it in there. They're not doing what they're supposed to do." No, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. I vet the discount uh, proposals. I put in people who you know who work, and there's been some people who've said, "Well, I can do this," and I've went, "It's so small," and I understand why that's all it is, but it's so small. It just won't help. I've had other people who've wanted to be part of the vendors program who have come to me with things that just don't work. They're too complicated, they're too confusing, and I try to explain it one time. If they don't get it, I go on and look for somebody else. On that note, I'm still looking for somebody that sells body armor to do a discount program for the Member Support Brigade. If that is you or if you know somebody, please get in touch with me. Please understand that it needs to be a simple, easy-to-understand thing like 5% off everything or free shipping or something like that. I've had people who want to make really super deals on just one product for a limited time. That is not how the Members Brigade works. It is a one-year commitment. I'd love to have anybody who wants to be a part of it send me some information about what they want to do. If you don't hear back from me, email me again. Sometimes stuff gets lost in the mail. All right, with that wrapped up, I want to start off with a lead-off story today. And like some of you, I said, probably have guessed what it is. It's this poor lady up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who had a beautiful front yard garden. 
and had it chopped down by the city. Yes, chopped down. Uh, not threatened with having it chopped down, but had it chopped down. And they did it in clear violation of their own laws and regulations. I'm not going to go any deeper into it yet. I'm going to go ahead and play for you the news report on it so you can hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And uh, then I'll come back with some thoughts on this. And I'll tell you my biggest problem with this is I don't know how to help. I don't see any kind of legal defense fund. This lady's currently doing some civil action, and, and, and I'm not sure if there's any way we can help directly, but it's something we need to be aware of and something we need to pay attention to. Here you go. Here's a story from a local news station. A Tulsa woman is suing the city's code enforcement officers after she says they cut down her garden with no cause. News on 6 crime reporter Lori Fulbright has that story new at 6. Lori? Well, Terry, Denise Morrison says she has more than 100 plant varieties in her front and backyards and says every one of them is edible and has a purpose. She knows which ones will treat arthritis, which ones will make your food spicy, which ones keep mosquitoes away and treat bug bites. But she says none of that matter to the city inspector. These are pictures of Denise Morrison's front and backyards last August, filled with flowers in bloom, lemons, stevia, garlic chives, grapes, strawberries, apple mint, spearmint, peppermint, an apple tree, walnut tree, pecan trees, and much more. She got a letter from the city saying there had been a complaint about her yard. She says she took these pictures to meet with city inspectors, but says they wouldn't listen. So she invited them out so they could point out to her the problem areas. Everything. Everything needs to go. When she heard they wanted to cut it all down, she called police. The officer issued her a citation so it could be worked out in court. She says she went to court on August 15th and the judge told them to come back in October. But the very next day, she took these pictures of men cutting down most of her plants. This is a before and an after picture of her front flower bed. I came back like three days later, sat in my driveway, cried, and I left. Denise says she had a problem at her last property with code enforcement, so this time she read the ordinance, which says plants cannot be over 12 inches tall unless they're used for human consumption. So everything she grew could be eaten, which she told inspectors. Every word out of their mouth was, we don't care. Denise says many of the plants that were destroyed, she used to use to treat her diabetes, high blood pressure, and arthritis. Not only is this my plants, my livelihood, but this was also my food. And I was unemployed at the time, so I had no food left, no medicine left. I don't have insurance. So they basically took away my life and my livelihood. Denise finally went to court last week for that citation she got last August. The garden portion of that citation was dismissed. She did plead no contest to having an inoperable truck in her driveway. She has filed a civil rights lawsuit this week accusing the inspectors of overstepping their authority. I called the city. They told me they have not received a copy of that lawsuit yet, so they cannot comment. Lori Fulbright, News on 6. Now, if you listen to this show, you know that Growing your own food is something I'm very passionate about that I think everybody should be doing. You know that I think that we should be free to use our own land within reason to grow and produce whatever we want. But I'm going to tell you something that you might be surprised to hear when I first start to talk about this story. This is not about a garden. This I am not pissed off about this because it's a garden. It just happens to be a garden. Here's what I'm really pissed off about. She told them, your regulations state... And I have complied with your regulations. And their response was, we don't care. The problem with this issue, it's a lot bigger than a garden. Don't worry, I'll get to the garden part and why I think that part's important. But we need to see this as a kind of pullback, static level legal issue. And to me, 
This is a gross overreach of authority. I also want to talk to you about something that I think a lot of people, when I've told them this story over the past week, because this story broke over a week ago, and I've been waiting to put it on the air for a feedback show because it's the right place for it. It's the first one I've done since I've heard about it. But as I tell people about it, when I get to the part where I say the police officer showed up and wrote her a citation, people roll their eyes and they look pissed off at the cop. This cop is a hero in this who had his work undone by another, you know, another department who just decided to act on their own. The officer wrote the citation specifically because he did not have the direct authority to stop the code officials or to tell the lady he had, that she had to cut it down. He looked at the situation, used his brain, and came to a solution. What his thought process seemed to have been was this is a court-level issue. These are another department of my city. I don't have the authority to tell them what to do, and they don't have the authority to tell me what to do. I'm making a judgment on the law. It's not a clear-cut case where I can, you know, it's not like somebody stealing a VCR. I can't stop these people directly. So what I'll do is I'll cite the lady for the offense. She can contest the offense and take it to court. And that's exactly what happened. They went to the court. The judge probably looked at this and went, okay, this is... This is a little bit more involved than a five-minute hearing. We'll set a different court date for it. We'll come back and hash this all out. Then the code enforcement people, while there was a pending case on the matter, simply went in and physically took action. These guys should be fired minimum and possibly fined or serve jail time. They didn't act, in my opinion, as code enforcement officials. They acted as private individuals that made a private decision to vandalize somebody's property. That, that's the way I see it, because to act using the authority of the city, you have to follow the authority of the city, which they've clearly violated. So this is why I say this is a bigger issue than a garden, and it's very important, in my opinion, that this woman win her civil case, And that's why if there's any way to, you know, to support it, I'm willing to throw the support of the audience behind it. It's not about a right to garden. It's about a right to hold public officials accountable to their own rules, laws, and regulations that they're supposed to follow. Because if a court rules that the city did nothing wrong here, what they effectively rule is that it's okay for a city to hold its citizens accountable to a regulation or a standard, but it's not okay for the city itself to be held to its own standards. And this is a huge civil liberties issue, and it should be have a lot more eyeballs on it than it does. Now, on the gardening side of things, this is once again a case of a pain-in-the-ass neighbor calling up the city and bitching about something. And I'm going to tell you how I feel about people that do this. I can't even say it. I, you know, I, I just think that even though I cuss on this show, that there's a level of vulgarity I hold myself back from. So I'll just say two of the three words. Piece of. You fill in the blank. Okay? That's how I feel about people that do this to their neighbors. It's absolutely sickening and disgusting that we currently live in a society where a neighbor will rat out a fellow neighbor because they grew a freaking carrot or a turnip or a freaking tree in their front yard and they don't like the way that it looks. Now, I will put a link to the actual story with the video and if you look at the way this, this lady's yard looked, it was absolutely beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous. And it, 
it, it really is time that, that, that this nation begins to stand up for people that are abused this way. You know, there's all kinds of nonsense that the media does to divide us, but I would think that most people with an IQ with at least three digits in it will be able to look at this issue and say what the city did was 100% wrong. 100%. Not a, a lot of times in these areas, even where I'm behind somebody, I can say, well, I can kind of see the other side, and this should have been handled differently and whatever, but this is a case where the code enforcement officials of the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, you want me to freaking blight another city, Tulsa, you're on the freaking watch list now, the code enforcement officials in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, in this matter, were 100% wrong and in violation of their own rules. And what needs to happen is this, the people of this city are the ones that really need to get behind this woman. If there's any way that we can help, I will. And part of why I'm so fuming, angry, is I don't know what we as a community at TSP can do in this matter. If anyone knows of anything that they've set up where we can help out, Let's do it. Now, here's what I'd like to do. Since there's a pending civil case on this, I would love it if someone up there associated with this woman would set up a program where we could contribute funding so she can replant her garden and maybe even get some help to have it replanted. That's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see it replanted because she has every legal leg to stand on now because the judge dismissed the citation for the front yard. Now, here's my problem with it. A dismissal is not a ruling. It's, it's dismissed, it, 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 like it never happened. It, it may have been dismissed because the, the yard was cut down. But I want to see this lady rebuild what she had, and I want to see people stand there and say, I don't think so today. That's what I'd love to see. If there's any way you guys know we can help that, so much the better. Now, here's another thing that just kind of was thrown under the, the radar there that you need to ask. What kind of dumbasses, what kind of stupid dumbasses are in the government of Tulsa, Oklahoma? This is Oklahoma. This isn't California or freaking Rhode Island, you idiots. It's Tulsa, Oklahoma. How is it that this woman was cited because she had a vehicle in her driveway that was inoperable? If I want to park a car in my freaking driveway that doesn't run and it's on my property... You know, unless it's infested with rats or something, just because it doesn't run and it's sitting there? How in the hell, how in the hell can you say that you can cite somebody for owning a vehicle that doesn't run? What kind of flipping retards do you people in Tulsa have running your city? And if you're from Tulsa and this angers you and you're angry at me, don't be angry at me. Be angry at the flipping retards down there at City Hall. You guys in the next election up there, need to get anybody that's remotely associated with this, anybody that's in your government with the authority to do something to fix this that hasn't acted, right? You need to call them one, you need to get organized and call this, these clowns up and say, fix this, and if they don't, you guys need to roll heads and clean houses. Cleaning house at the city level is not hard to do. It takes a little bit of organization and a little bit of anger and a little bit of motivation. Make me proud, Tulsa. Make me proud. Because you have retarded, idiot, moron jackasses running your city to let something like this go as far as it has. 
Absolutely. I expect this in Chicago. I expect this nonsense in San Francisco. I expect this crap in some of the freaking, you know, libtard cities in New England. I do not expect this from a state like Oklahoma and a city like Tulsa. You've got to be out of your flipping minds. There's a way to launch off on a, uh, on a Monday, I guess. Let's go to another subject before I blow a freaking gasket. This one actually comes in from Darby Simpson. Uh, who's on our expert council, uh, but it was a comment on the blog, but I liked the question so much that I pulled it into the queue, because it's a very interesting thing to consider. Here's what he said, and this was in response to a listener feedback show from June 11th, or a couple weeks ago. Ryan said that I think as soon as the election's over, to, to, to like, Europe's just, the, and we're going to talk more about Europe to wrap the show up today, and the Euro crisis over there, but, but Europe is bailing out and bailing out and bailing, just holding on, and trying to wait for the U.S. to come to the rescue, and that the Federal Reserve can't go printing money and, and loaning it out the back door to the European banks this close to an election, and, 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 and frankly, neither candidate really would probably want that. Romney would probably benefit from it, but, you know, he, he, basically, either one of the clowns running for the president of your country, folks, would be okay with that, but not leading up to an election. So they're holding till November, and then they'll open up the backdoor lending like the $16 trillion they already pumped in. They'll pump some trillions more over into the European banking system and try to be quiet about it, but they'll never be completely quiet about it, though it probably won't receive a lot of attention at that point. But what Darby asked in response to that, he says, if the Fed starts pumping money into the bank's economy post-election in November, and I think you're right, they will, could we see precious metals take another huge leap? After the last election, the money pumping began, and we saw huge increases in the price of metals. Just curious what your take is, wondering if silver is a good buy now at $28, like it was at $12 in 2008. Um, I don't call buy prices in the silver and the gold market for you guys. I, I tell you, you have to make your own decision. At $28, I'm still buying silver here and there. Okay, I'll tell you that. And if silver goes lower, I buy a little bit more. And if it goes lower, I buy a little bit more. And if it goes lower, I buy a little bit more. I think silver, from a long-term perspective, is a solid investment at $28. That's all I can say. Will it ramp way up again after the, the Fed starts to print money? It all depends. In some ways, it depends on what the financial clowns think the political clowns are going to do based on who wins. Um, it also depends on how much upside's already been priced into metals. Uh, as, as I've been saying for years, I still see more upside in silver than gold. I think there's a lot of upside price than the gold already right now. Um, it has to do with, well, when they put this next Band-Aid on, how long do people think it's going to last? What does it do to the stock market? You've seen silver and gold pull back as the, as the stock market has gone forward. Now, it's lost a lot of its gains this year already, but if we look at it over a two-year period, it's done fairly well for people. So investors, big money investors, they go where the returns are. So as they lose faith in things like the market, they move into hard assets like silver and gold. So it has all that type of a dynamic to how it works out. If the, if the printing is done in a way that the big institutional investors feel it's going to work, it could have very little effect on metal prices. If it's done in a way where the big money people are still quite pessimistic about the stock market's future, it could have very big jump. I mean, remember, after the last election, the stock market got worse and worse and worse and worse and nearly exploded in February of 2008. I mean, it was just 
I mean, people were looking at going, is it the end? And without all the money stuffing they did to prop the Frankenstein monster back up, it, it, it could have completely unraveled because people were just bailing on everything. And, and that that's that's a huge concern as well because here's the thing that no one wants to talk about. This is the poison pill. The American people now have seen this movie before and recently. And they saw the 2008-2009 crisis get way worse than the previous, you know, like the dot-com bust and the telecom bust and all that stuff. They, they saw it get way, way worse. They saw it hit home a hell of a lot more. And even with the rebound in numbers, they're still feeling the effects. Should a legitimate-looking stock investment crisis come in the near future, and I'm going to tell you, I think it takes five years at least for the sheep to really go back to sleep on this one. There could be a much bigger knee-jerk reaction this time around. And when everybody bails at the same time, there's only one direction the price of the stock goes, and that's down. And as that devalues, that deleverages a lot of the money that's being held in the market for the, the, organ, the corporations to use, and that also has a negative effect on lending. And I'll get more into lending later and some concerns that I have about lending seizing up and why I'm like... You know, thinking about moving my move back to Texas, accelerating that timeline a little bit, because uh, I'm I'm concerned that we could see lending begin to seize up, or at least the cost of lending go a lot higher, or uh, the requirements for lending get more stringent than they already are. So, uh, if you're thinking of buying a house, you might be at a point where if you can pull it off smartly, that now might be a good time to do that. Um, prices are good, mortgage rates are good, and the approval process is somewhat more lenient than the knee-jerk response that we had in 2008. I'm concerned we might have another one of those. So um, that's kind of my thoughts on the metal market. So the answer is it depends. Um, but long-term, sooner or later, when we go into a runaway money-printing attempt to save the final you know, disaster that, that must come, at that point, metal prices go crazy because it's the only place to go. And I believe that several major players in the world, and most specifically China, are positioning themselves for that eventuality. They're positioning so, themselves for it. China has not only made it legal for their citizens to own silver many years ago, but now they've, they've asked them to do it, go out and buy it. Um, there's shops all over China so that you can go can convert your money to silver. There are entire banking systems being set up in China with the people using silver as money. They are way ahead of us on the, on the curve here. And I know a lot of people have a hard time accepting that China is going to become the new financial giant in the world. And when I say the new financial giant, I simply mean that they're going to be the, largest, the world's largest economy. That's, that's all that I mean. And when you're the world's largest economy you get to a say-so over everybody else. And you get a lot of power and a lot of clout in addition to whatever type of military strength you have. The United States has enjoyed that position for a very long time. We've done both good and complete evil by using the leverage of that position, as any government likely would. And what I'm telling you is the baton is about to be ripped out of our hands because it's not like a relay race. It's like a race. And when the, when the, the front runner goes past the number two guy, the, the number one guy and becomes the number one guy himself, he just yanks the baton out. And it is unlikely that we'll be able to financially catch up to them. And that means that it doesn't mean the world ends. It doesn't mean China owns America. Um, on a debt 
level, they might. But you, a debt is only as valuable as what you can collect. That's something everybody needs to understand about the debt side of things here. But uh, I'm going to say my thoughts on the economy for a uh, response to Peter Schiff's thoughts about the euro crisis and what awaits America as the anchor point end of the show today. Let's take another story for now. Oh, let's get off on a totally different subject for uh, a bit of time, and, and an important one, and one that can really help us, and something I didn't know. I had no idea about this. Uh, not long ago, I did a, a, a segment uh, on uh, somebody that wrote, uh, some TV chef or some something like that, had wrote this thing on meat myths. And one of the meat myths was that, you know, you need to cook pork until it's fully cooked. And you don't need to worry about that anymore because of these stringent, wonderful, golden USDA standards and that trichinosis is a thing of the past in, in, in pork that's USDA uh, pork. And USDA, for those that don't really know what USDA is, is a freaking stamp. It doesn't really mean jack shit. Um, the bigger the company, the more shit they can get away with and still get their USDA stamp. Uh, and when you look at what USDA says is okay in a chicken farm, And a chicken processing plant, which is dunking chickens in boiling hot, chlorinated, ammoniated water when they've been disemboweled by a mechanical disembowelment thing, and basically they're being dipped into, yes, uh, let's say sterilized or sanitized water, but it's made up mostly of chicken poo uh, that's in there, and that gets reabsorbed into the meat, and they think that's okay. I'm not quite comfortable with cooking pork uh, and leaving it pink because I know how bad trichinosis is. And uh, this person said it's okay, and I said, you know, you do what you want, but not me. Well, uh, an email came in from a guy we'll call Daryl because that's his first name. We'll leave his last name out of it. He said, regarding trichinosis, ever hear of freezing to eliminate the parasite? It's a method we use when making certain dried pork products that are not cured with nitrites or nitrates. An excerpt. Freezing. Experiments have been performed to determine the effect of cold temperatures on the survival of T. spirillus and pork. Predicted times required to kill the Tricane were 8 minutes at 20 degrees below 0 Celsius, which is negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit, 64 minutes at negative 15 Celsius, which is 5 degrees Fahrenheit, 4 days at negative 10, which is 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Tricane were killed instantly at negative 23 Celsius or negative 10 Fahrenheit. The U.S. Department of Agricultural Code of Federal Regulations requires that pork intended for use in processed products be frozen at 17.8 degrees below zero Celsius or zero degrees Fahrenheit for 106 hours at 20.6 degrees below zero Celsius or 5 degrees below uh, zero Fahrenheit for 82 hours or at 23.3 degrees Celsius or negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit for 63 hours at negative 21.6 degrees C, thus freezing at zero degrees Fahrenheit for four plus days covers you, according to the great folks at the USD. Great added for sarcasm, source, and there's a source article fact sheet that I will link to. I actually think this is credible information. As I've checked into it, it seems to check out fairly well. Uh, then, you know, my immediate question is, well, what's the average temperature of a, of a residential freezer? And the answer is typically at around zero degrees Fahrenheit or lower. And uh, if you have your ice cream starting to get soft, uh, ice cream starts to soft between about six and ten degrees. So if you got really hard ice cream, you're probably down in zero. You can always check with a thermometer. But that gives us kind of an average that we're somewhere in the neighborhood of zero degrees Fahrenheit. When I go back to the specs then, uh, what I can see is that 
the, uh, the 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 spec is stating that I could effectively kill all the Trichonae bacteria uh, with freezing for about 64 minutes at about 5 degrees Fahrenheit. So the typical residential freezer, if we put pork product in there, and I'm going to get to why this is really important, more important than just commercial pork in just a second, and we freeze that pork for a couple of weeks, we can just pretty much write it off as being a risk anymore. Uh, and again, this is from the USDA.gov. So this is not Jack Spirico's facts, this is the USDA's facts. And I believe they're right on this. I've checked into it. It seems to check out really well. Uh, there's a lot of pork product that, like the, uh, the writer of the email said, is sold as, you know, uh, it's cured without nitrates or nitrites, and it's dried pork. It's not been cooked to 160 degrees. And we don't have any people flopping over with trichinosis from eating that stuff. Now, here's why I think it's important. It gives us a level of added protection with things that might carry trichinosis other than commercial pork, like wild boar, uh, like bear meat, like raccoon. All of those animals can carry trichinosis, and there's quite a list of animals that are capable of carrying trichinosis. Uh, and uh, that, that is something that if we're using wild meats, we need to be aware of as well. So if for some reason we wanted to try to make a dried product or something like that out of any of these meats, it would appear on the surface, and if anybody can completely confirm or deny this, and like I said, everything I've checked into, it checks out. If we take and freeze at zero degrees Fahrenheit for a couple weeks, we're well past, well past the required time to kill any trichinosis bacteria. If you think I've spent a long time on this for not a good reason, Google trichinosis, click on images, and see what it looks like when a person gets a bad trichinosis infection. And then read about how hard it is to treat, and you'll see just how big of a concern it is. A little bit of uh, bad water that gives you diarrhea for a couple days, unless you're in the middle of the, the, the jungle or the middle of the wilderness and can't get home, and dehydration is a huge concern, sucks, but it ain't anywhere near what trichinosis will do to you. And again, animals like bears, animals like wild boar, javelina, uh, raccoon, uh, many, many animals are capable of carrying trichinosis, and it's something we need to consider. In fact, many small mammals, uh, including any, uh, most rodents, uh, like rats, and you say, well, I don't want to eat rats. Well, you know, it's something to think about in a, a true breakdown, and it's one of the most eaten things in the world, and there's a lot of animals out there that are rodents that can carry this stuff that aren't really rats that we might go trap in the wilderness. So we need to realize that we need to fully cook these types of, of, of animals, and if we're using them, it's a good um, it's a good reason to freeze them because it helps eliminate the concern. And again, if you don't think this is a big deal, do a little research about trichinosis and find out what it really is and what it really does, how hard it is to treat, and take a look at somebody's eyes that has a trichinosis infection. And I think maybe you'll realize why it's something I talk about from time to time when it comes to keeping ourselves safe with the consumption of wild meats. Uh, but it does make me a little bit more likely to be willing to cook pork a little bit pink if it's been frozen before I cook it. Uh, it's a risk I'm not willing to take with, with fresh pork. I don't care if the USDA says not to worry about it, that it'll be fine. Your USDA tells me to not worry about a lot of things that are supposedly fine, and, and it's, it's something that, that a pig simply can carry, and it's a concern. Uh, now, as far as cooking fresh pork, I'll tell you what, uh, what my thoughts are on, on full cooking. There's two types of pork that you're going to get your hands on, thin and thick. And if it's thick, especially fatty, you can cook it fully and it ain't going to dry out on you. 
It just isn't. It, it, there, there's no problem with it, especially if you're cooking. And I like to cook, especially if I have to go to commercial pork because um, I can't get some pastured stuff or whatever because it's so so weak in flavor anymore because I feed them nothing but freaking corn um, that I like to get things with a lot of fat in them and some bone and like a pork shoulder roast, butt roast, or what have you. And, and those things, you can cook them low and slow, uh, on indirect heat, cooking for hours and hours and hours, and you're just not going to dry. If you dry that out, you've done something bad wrong. So it's easy, and that's my. F- I like to smoke those and, and do them on the, the side block smoker and roast them, and and I, I love those cuts of meat. If you're going to cook a thin piece of pork, and you don't want it to dry out, the key is extremely high heat. Cook it extremely fast. Sear both sides. As soon as both sides are seared, it's done. It'll cook through like that. You'll have no trouble reaching the internal temperature you need to. Uh, and if you cook it too long, it will dry out and it does suck. So either avoid those cuts of meat or get a really hot fire that you're cooking on. And either way, you'll be uh, happy with your results. Let's take another one. Well, we've talked about dumb people running cities. But what if you have dumb people that are a little bit smart running cities? Like, they're smart in a bad way. Like, they can figure out how to do things that are wrong and, and, and put a different spin on it. Let's say you were one of those people. I know you're not. Let's just say you were, and you were responsible for a city. And that city was on the verge of bankruptcy, and there was no way you could pay your bills, and you needed to save about $9 million. And to do it, you needed to screw over your city employees. But you didn't want the bad press from declaring bankruptcy. You didn't want your loan rates to go up or whatever, because you weren't going to screw your, the people that you owed money back to. You are going to screw the people you owed money to directly, like your employees and retirement pensions and things like that. And you wanted your bondholders to feel safe and continue to loan you money in the future so you could continue to be a stupid person. But there's no way to pay your bills. You're just out of money. You can't get any more money. You can only borrow so much. You, you owe so much. And you've got to cut $9 million or more out of the budget right now. Well, you might think there's nothing that you can do. Well, what if you played the game most politicians do, which is read and understand the law and utilize things that are not intended for something uh, for something that you want to intend it for, because by the letter of the law and a technicality and a loophole, you can. What you might just do is declare an emergency. And under emergency powers, then screw over people, cut the budget, and then say, see, we're not bankrupt. Does this sound ridiculous to you? Does this sound like something that can't possibly happen? Well, right off the Associated Press, let me read it to you. North Las Vegas, Levada, Nevada, AP. There are no signs of rioters, wind-damaged homes, or flooding. The brand-new city hall features glimmering marble floors. You've got to have marble floors. Uh, And the public recreation centers offer Zumba, Karate, and Pilates classes. That sounds like a great place to be. Despite all its suburban trimmings, North Las Vegas is officially a disaster area. After five years of declining property taxes, massive layoffs, and questionable spending... Leaders of the blue-collar, family-oriented city outside of Las Vegas declared a state of emergency invoking a rarely used state law crafted for unseen disasters. Listen to this guy. No matter the statute, uh, no matter that the statute which allows for municipalities to suspend union contracts and avoid paying scheduled salary increases doesn't actually include fiscal emergencies among the list of potential disasters. So it gives a list. It says, here's a list of disasters that qualify for this, and financial emergencies not on the list. Now listen to this clown, the city council member. Quote, it says in case of emergency such as, 
You can't list how many different types of emergencies there are in the world, close quote. City Council Member Wade Wagner said of the move, which will save the city $9 million dollars. There are many cities across the nation grappling with declining property values and growing expenses like North Las Vegas, but few, if any, have declared a financial emergency. Stockton, California, and Los Angeles explored similar emergency declarations and were met with legal challenges. In Buffalo, New York, court officials upheld a wage freeze in 2006 that allowed the city to address its four-year $127 million deficit and avoid financial disaster. North Las Vegas is among Nevada's hardest-hit cities, at a time when the state is dealing with the nation's highest unemployment rate and unrelenting tide of foreclosures and bankruptcies. Every few months, the state threatens to take over the city. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. But here's what happened. Th these people simply said, hey, look, there's a state law. This is a city can declare an emergency, and during an emergency will have powers that they normally don't have. That right there should send a shiver up the back of every single person listening to this show. Because that's what government always does. In the case of certain things going on, they declare emergency, increase their powers beyond their constitutional rights and, and, and regulated powers, and do things they otherwise would not be able to do. In this case, they cut some, they, they didn't allow wage increases, they broke some union contract obligations and things like that. And it's probably that what they've done needed to be done. But to set this precedent that just because you're an idiot and you spent money you didn't have, instead of having to negotiate a settlement, instead of having to come to an agreement with people, instead of having to stand and face the fire, instead of possibly having to enter restructuring, which is why bankruptcy exists so that, a, so that an organization can restructure. And let me explain to you why this is important. When you go into a receivership-type bankruptcy, There's an independent third-party court that comes into the situation and looks after the needs, the obligations, and the, the, the welfare of all parties involved and says, okay, look, this is, we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to figure out how to do this. Bondholders, you're going to get screwed some. Employees, you're going to get screwed some. But they select a, a way to try to do it equitably based on the investment that's been made of all the parties and what's available, what's left, and they come up with a solution that's in the best interest of everybody under the circumstances, which means, yes, people are going to get screwed, but it's the best we could do. That's how it's designed to work any, anyway, and at least with a court overseeing it, who doesn't have a direct vested interest for you know any side, there's a chance that it can be pulled off that way. When a city declares emergency powers, they do whatever the hell they flip and want to. You get that? They just do whatever they want. So they came in and made unilateral decisions that normally they would have had to negotiate and work out, and they did it without any check or balance. Completely the antithesis of the way that government's supposed to work in a republic, even at the city level. In other words, it's another city not following their own rules and laws. And this clown, this guy's a jackass, Wade Wagner, Well, you can't list all the disasters. There's, there's something in this country, Mr. Wagner, called the spirit of the law. And do you really believe that when the state legislature of the state of Nevada wrote this law for emergency situations, they, they meant it so that you could be a jackass and avoid a bankruptcy proceedings? Now, here's the thing. What they've done won't fix the problem. They haven't addressed the problem. 
The problem is the same problem that exists everywhere right now, debt. And all this does is allow them to maintain their credit rating because bondholders go, they'll screw their own people to pay us so they're worthy of being lent money. So that allows them to continue to borrow money to continue the operations for their marble floors and free Zumba classes for city... They're not free classes, Zumba people, right? And all you're doing... All you're doing when you do things like, well, let's set up Zumba classes at the city hall. All you're doing is preventing private businesses from doing it because you're taking it out of the market. You're making it a government function instead of a private. I mean, they're doing every single thing wrong. They've screwed some of their own people over to prolong the inevitable, but we're still going to end up at the same place. And I guarantee you there'll be legal challenges to this, and it's very likely that they're not going to be able to get away with it. Uh, but there's an interesting city in there that leads us to our next story mentioned in the article, Stockton, California. Now, I've been telling you about Stockton, California for over two years. I've been telling you that there, this is a city that's completely on the brink, and there's absolutely no way to avoid bankruptcy. It's 100% inevitable. Sound like anything else I talk about, like eventually the uh, U.S. debt overriding everything and bringing the oil economy down, right? That it's mathematically inevitable, okay? Well, here we go. Here's a little story. It is on foxnews.com. It's an excerpt off of uh, the Wall Street Journal story on it. Uh, Stockton, California is set to declare bankruptcy as early as this week, according to local officials, a move that would make it one of the largest U.S. cities ever to file for reorganization. On Monday, a state required mediation with creditors to find a fiscal solution is scheduled to expire. Stockton City Council is then set to... Meet Tuesday to decide whether to adopt a budget for operating in bankruptcy, a move widely considered the last step before the city formally submits a Chapter 9 petition to a federal bankruptcy court. Stockton is required to file a budget before its new fiscal year, which begins July 1st. That's just around the corner, guys. Quote, the budget I'm sending to the council assures we will file for bankruptcy, Stockton City Manager Bob D. said in an interview. Quote, we've been working very hard to try to negotiate a major financial restructuring package, but the timeline is close to ending, end quote. Stockton, a Northern California city of roughly 300,000 people in the agriculture-heavy San Joaquin Valley, would be one of the largest cities ever to file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy, according to municipal finance experts and bankruptcy officials. Viejo, California, a city of 120,000 just north of San Francisco, owed $50 million to its creditors when it sought bankruptcy protection in 2008, while Stockton has a debt load of $700 million. Viejo emerged from insolvency last year. This city owes its creditors $700 million. Stockton, California, a city of 300,000 people, owes $700 million. I want to put this in perspective for you. That's 70% of a billion dollars. 70% of a billion dollars. $700 million. That's not that big a city. That's a lot of money. I mean, if you want to get an understanding, this is $700 million. Go watch the YouTube video, The $100 Million Penny. Watch that video and understand what $100 million is, and then realize these guys owe 700 of those, or seven times that amount. Um, and you, you start to look at this and realize that technically it's, it, I want to say this in a, in a way that you make sure you understand there's a caveat at the end of this. It's not that much money. For that many people, it's about $2,300 a citizen, okay? But it's $2,300 for every citizen, 
That means little babies that were just born yesterday. They own $2,000. That's just what they owe per citizen at the level of their city. Then move out to the county, move out to the state, move out to the federal government, and you start to realize that you know everybody in America is in hawk for, for hundreds of thousands of dollars that they don't have to a government that borrowed the money on their behalf that doesn't have the money either, and, and the only solution that they, they are coming up with is more debt all over the place. And we'll, we'll get into more about the debt solution with Peter Schiff here in a bit. But what is going to happen here is that that $700 million largely will blow away like a fart in the wind. When they go into receivership, make no mistake about it, the, the court will do what it can to protect, protect employees and pension benefits and stuff like that, and the bondholders will get the short end of the straw on some level. Um, let's say that the city reaches a solution in bankruptcy court. And effectively, they've reduced their debt load to $400 million. And then they have to go into this repayment program. The cost of borrowing money goes up. Recession increases. They tax their people further to try to get out of it. They go through these years and try to come out the other side. And let's say they even pull it off. What we need to realize, though, is then the $300 million that was due back to investors is gone. And all of the things that money was supposed to do is gone. And it's an example of a retraction of the currency supply. It's like keep trying to explain that when debt is repaid or dissolved, money disappears. And what happens when it's not stocked in California and the you know, North Las Vegas and a few hundred thousand people? What happens when the day of reckoning comes for cities the size of Chicago, for cities the size of San Francisco and Los Angeles, for cities the size of Houston with five million people? Five million freaking people. People, And what happens when that coincides with the economy falling apart in Europe? What happens when that coincides with the U.S. debt clock just running away and continuing to run away? What happens when this stuff starts to coincide with the layoffs that it creates? Do you think that when Stockton goes into bankruptcy that their economy is going to get better? Or do you think it's going to get worse? What do you think that does to the surrounding economies? Right? How well will it work out for Viejo who just came out of their own mess? When, when, when Stockton goes bankrupt, with inter, you know, all of these cities and communities people don't seem to get are interconnected. They share resources at the county level as well, which means they're paying in, not just taking out. There's, there's all kinds of consequences here. And, and what I want you to understand today, from a, a standpoint of protecting yourself, is this is just the first threads in the tapestry beginning to be pulled out and plucked out. But once one thread starts to go and people keep pulling, what happens? Eventually they all go. This is early warning stuff. And, and it's something to take really, really seriously. And it's a reason to be more prepared. It's the reason to solidify yourself. It's a reason to get out of debt. We're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with this and we're going to deal with this everywhere, not just in a few places. I know it's it's tempting to say, well, you know, these, these people in California, they do everything wrong. And it, well, North Las Vegas is, is is nothing like California. It's a very blue collar place, as the article said. And it's you know, it doesn't have a lot of the Nevada doesn't have a lot of the stupid regulations that California does. Nevada is one of the primary states that people who are going to incorporate in a state other than their own state. Uh, do it's Nevada and Delaware are the two big ones. They're great states to do business as a company, and yet they're dealing with this too. It's not going away. It's not all going to be okay. 
Right? There's a lot of things we can do, and it probably will never be the Hollywood bullshit that we get told about and scared about and told, you know, you know, buy all my stuff from, from people in the very industry that I'm part of. They, they overhype things. But, guys, you got to take it seriously because everything that we've been talking about happening over the years, you're watching it happen in real time. And it, it, it's always the case with things like these city-level bankruptcies. It's something I've been calling for a long time. A couple fall, and a couple more fall, and a couple. And it's, it takes the precedent being set of them not being bailed out by the state or the county, or they are. Either way, you end up with the same mess. And sooner or later, you get the tidal wave. It's just like the housing crisis. Do you see the parallel? When the housing crisis began. Well, foreclosures are up in this city. Foreclosures are up in this city. Foreclosures are up in this city. There's all of these, you know, class B, you know, lower end uh, loans coming to, to 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 bear. A lot of these are bad mortgages. We know that, and this is starting to unravel here, and that's starting to unravel here. And what did the talking heads say? Oh, it's that's okay. That's just yeah, that's bad. That's but it's a small piece of the whole. Even if it all falls apart. It's only a little piece of all the mortgages. It's it's okay. But what they didn't get, either because they were in denial or didn't want to or were just lying to you about, is that when that piece falls, it drags the other segment with it. As people begin to bail out, it lowers property values. Now more and more people are stuck in their houses. This causes a currency contraction. The currency contraction seizes up lending. When lending seizes up, business gets harder to do. People stop spending money. That puts a further retraction on the economy, which further leads to greater housing. See, that's how the whole thing goes in a chain reaction. This is doing the same thing. As these cities fall in... The surrounding communities fall in. As they fall in, then the bigger communities begin to fall in. Then a city, you know, it's only a matter of time till it's Los Angeles or Chicago or Honolulu, Hawaii, going to the feds going, we're too big to fail, and the feds go, man, I don't know if we can handle this, because as soon as they bail out one, they got to bail out them all. And, and eventually, if enough of them line up, you can't do it anyway. Or the amount of money you have to print to do it is so insane that even even the, the modern nonsense can't be pulled off anymore. It's just it, it's a debt backed system, and until we fix that, there's no escaping the eventual point where the debt load grows too large too fast, and we can't compensate anymore. All right, let's go to another one. Um, there's a huge story out. And when I first saw it, I thought, "Oh, great! It's you know, it's another example of being right uh, where you don't want to be right." And I'm not even surprised was my first thought. I'm just not sure that it's being accurately reported. Um, and as much as I want to thump companies like Conagra and Bear and and Monsanto on the head for what they're doing with GMOs, I'm not sure this is really a GMO thing. Let me read the original story to you on CBS News, and then let me tell you my thoughts on it. Let me tell you why it's important that if it's not a GM crop, we don't go around saying that it is. Uh, CBS News, Elgin, Texas, a mysterious mass death, mass death of a herd of cattle has prompted a federal investigation into central Texas. Preliminary test results are blaming the deaths on the grass the cows were eating when they got sick, reports CBS station KEYE. The cows dropped dead several weeks ago on an 80-acre ranch owned by Jerry Abel in Elgin, just east of Austin. Abel says he's been using the field for cattle grazing and hay for 15 years. 
A lot of leaf. It's good grass. Tested high for protein. It should have been perfect, he told K-E-Y-E correspondent Lisa Lee, uh, Lisa Lee Kelly. The grass is a genetically modified form of Bermuda known as uh, Tifton 85, which has been growing here for 15 years. Feeding Abel's 18 head of Cornite cattle. Cornite are used uh, for team roping because of their small size and horns. When we opened the gate to that fresh grass, they were all very anxious to get to that, said Abel. Three weeks ago, the cattle had just been turned out to enjoy the fresh grass when something went terribly wrong. When our trainer first heard the bellowing, he thought our pregnant heifer might have been having a calf or something, said Abel. But when he got down there, virtually all the steers and heifers were on the ground. Some were, actually, some were already dead and the others were already in convulsions. Within hours, 15 of the 18 cattle were dead. Quote, that's, a very tra- that's very traumatic to see because there was nothing you could do. Obviously, they were dying, said Abel. Preliminary tests revealed that the Tifton 85 grass, which has been here for years, had suddenly started producing cyanide gas, poisoning the cattle. Coming off the drought that we had for the last two years, we're concerned it was a combination of events that led to this. Dr. Warner, an Elgin veterinarian and cattle specialist who conducted the 15 necropsies, told Kelly. What's more worrisome, other farmers have tested their Tifton 85 grass, and several in Bastrop County have found their fields are also toxic with cyanide. However, no other cattle have died. Scientists at the U.S. Department of Agriculture are dissecting the grass to determine if there might have been some strange, unexpected mutation. Until it can be determined why the grass suddenly began producing cyanide, Abing is keeping his life, Abel's keeping his livestock far away. The grasshoppers are enjoying it now, he said. Okay. Here's my problem. The report clearly indicates that this is a genetically modified form of grass. Trying to vet the story, though, I wanted to see, well, who, you know, is it, is it the usual suspect? This is Monsanto behind this. So I looked up Tifton 85 Bermuda grass, and this is on the USDA, UGA.edu site, uh, about Tifton. Uh, and here's what it says. Tifton 85 is the best of many F1 hybrids between PL290884 from South Africa and Tifton 68, a highly digestible but cold-susceptible hybrid that was released in 1983. Tifton 85 is a sterile pentaploid, except for, Tif- except for Tifton 68 is taller, has larger stems, broader leaves, and a darker green color than other Bermuda grass hybrids. Tifton 85 has large rhizomes, though many fewer than Coastal or Tifton 44. Crowns are very large and rapidly uh, spreading uh, stalins. I won't keep reading because this is all very, very agricultural. What I don't see is the word genetically modified anywhere on this page. I'm not saying it's not genetically modified, but a hybrid is not a GMO. A hybrid is two species crossed. Now, is it possible that PI290884 from South Africa is a GMO and then we've hybrided this thing with a GMO so it is effectively? It is. Uh, it's possible. But I can't confirm that. Now, I have found some sites claiming that it's just a hybrid. But all of the sites claiming it's just a hybrid are, are sourcing the source I just gave you. So they're referring back to the same source I have. So... What I would like is help from the audience. Is this thing a GMO? And I think the answer is no. I think this is just a hybrid grass. And I don't think that Monsanto and Conagra and Bear get the blame here. I think this is some sort of weird thing that happened 
going from a highly droughted situation to a much more hydrated situation, and it could be a bigger problem. It might be a real problem, but let me get to the important point. The GMO food threat is real. It's, it's, it's very, very real. It's very, very well documented, and there is huge research behind proving that to be the case. We know that when we eat soy product that's been drenched with glyphosate, which is Roundup, that that can't possibly be good for us. We know that things like the BT corn with the BT in the root system has created a whole bunch of like super-duper root knot worms that are immune to the natural BT that used to help keep them in check. We know that a lot of things that they're doing with these GMO crops that are allowing them to grow them on fallow soil is contributing to the destruction of property and land and topsoil. We know there's tons of things wrong with GMOs. It's very important that we don't pl behave like some of the wackos in the, you know, the, the global warming movement. Like, oh, look, see, it's the warmest day ever in Atlanta in, in June, so that's proof. I mean, see, that's what discredits them. And they're also discredited because there's plenty of discrediting evidence, but it doesn't help their cause. I don't want the people that are on the right side of this fight to behave that way. And we don't need to be running around going, look, look, and I already know, I know it's probably on millions of Facebook pages and all, and if you've blogged about it or you Facebooked it, you might want to go out and, and either pull it down or put up a correction. Because this will be the exact type of thing a company like Monsanto will come in and go, see, it's a smear campaign. We don't have it, and, and I guarantee there's people already blogging out, this is Monsanto grass, and I, I can't find a connection between Monsanto and this stuff. If it's there, fine, but I can't find it. So they'll say, see, look, look, we had nothing to do with this. It's not even a GMO. It's a natural, and all these nut jobs and these health or freak as the way are saying this stuff. We got to be careful, guys. You know, I get emails from a lot of you guys a lot of times that tell me something like, you know, Barack Obama did this or whatever, and I'm no fan of anybody in government, honestly, and I'm like, this doesn't, doesn't seem right, and I'll fact check it in three seconds and find out it's a complete fabrication, or there's like one little shred of truth in it, and everything else that's morphed out of it is complete lies and bullshit. Guys, we've got to be careful, right? If you want to fight for right, then it's incumbent on you to do the best you can to fact check your stuff. Now, I've, I think I've gotten better about that with the podcast, and I, I've done a better job of fact checking things before I bring it out. I've made some mistakes, but when I've made a mistake, I've always come back with a retraction and said, this was a mistake, here's why I got it wrong, here's the real story, and I think we all need to be, if you're a blogger today, even if you see a little blogger blog and you blog a couple times a week, you're a journalist. Your, your material is going to be cited somewhere. And it's incumbent to try to make it as accurate as possible. So I think what we have here is something weird that happened. We certainly need to pay attention to it. We certainly need to figure out why it happened. And this stuff's planted all over Texas. This is a very common uh, pasture grass that a lot of people have planted. But it's, it, it, as far as I can tell, it's not GMO. And this time Monsanto's not to blame. And it's some kind of a weird occurrence. Was it a mutation? Or is it simply that a certain environmental thing happened that caused it to happen. And the key is, if that's the case, is it not the grass itself but characteristics of the grass? Is it, is it the size of those stems? Is it some type of a natural fermentation? There's many things that have naturally occurring cyanide in them. Grapes generally have very, very trace amounts of naturally occurring cyanide in them. So it's not unprecedented that cyanide would occur in an organic uh, substance or a plant or a fruit. It, it does happen. But we need to figure out what caused it and is there any way to mitigate it 
is it is it ex, is it exclusive to this stuff to this particular grass, or is it something that can happen elsewhere? Has anything like it ever happened before? I don't know, but I, I just want to urge caution on this one. And understand that not every time something goes wrong in the ag world is it the, the fault of GMOs. GMOs have plenty of things to attack. Let's make sure we attack it on the grounds of, of what's proven true, what's factual, and let's not tie things together that don't belong together. Because I can already see this one being a year from now, me getting emails where people are talking about, look what, look what Monsanto did to the cows. And, and so please, if you've been part of this up till now, if there's any way you can, correct it. By retraction, by editing, by removal, what have you. Don't give these clowns ammunition they don't need. It's a lot like posting something stupid about guns. Like everybody that gets near my house is going to get shot. If you post something like that, then the anti-gunners are going to go, See? Look. And it's one idiot, and they try to paint us all that way. Um, Monsanto has a huge budget. They're very much on their heels with this thing right now. They don't need any help, and I think that if, if I'm right on this one, and I feel I'm right on this one, that we're giving them a lot of help by calling this a GMO. And if anybody dares associate them with it, man, they're going to freaking, it's going to be like somebody handing them a golden chalice. It's actually conceivable that these guys are so sleazy that they'll go set up things to look like blogs, condemning themselves just so they can respond to it. Uh, it's not beyond them at all to do crap like that. Those those guys know exactly, precisely what they're doing, but let's not help them out, and let's try to check in the things before we just run with it. And I have to say that I feel like, um, you know, in this case, CBS News absolutely blew it with the vetting process. It's one thing when we as bloggers or podcasters get something wrong. CBS freaking News, you guys don't know that there's been a hybrid and a GMO? Um, who knows? It could even be a backhanded. I don't know, man. It just it just feels wrong to me all over the place. It, it's a big mistake. It could be an honest mistake, but it's a big one, and we need to try to correct it. Uh, I think I got one more for you guys today. So this came from Dan in Indiana, and it's uh, it's a segment of Peter Schiff discussing the euro crisis and what we have to look forward to uh, by learning from it. And I'm going to play that, and I'll come back and finish up the show with my thoughts on it and what I think we need to be doing to protect ourselves right now. This is from the U.K. His name is uh, Nigel Farage. He is a member of Parliament. He's the leader of the U.K. Independence Party. And I was talking about the, the, the futility and the stupidity of the most recent uh, bailout in Spain. But, you know, he does a really good job, in fact, even a better job than I did. It's very interesting to listen to it, especially with an English accent. So I'm going to play some cuts. Another one bites the dust. Country number four, Spain gets bailed out, and we all, of course, know that it won't be the last. Though I wondered over the weekend whether perhaps I was missing something. Because when the Spanish Prime Minister, Mr. Rajoy, got up, he said that this bailout shows what a success the Eurozone has been. And I thought, well, having listened to him over the previous couple of weeks telling us there wouldn't be a bailout, I've got the feeling after all his twists and turns, he's just about the most incompetent leader in the whole of Europe. And that's saying something, because there's pretty stiff competition. <laughs> Indeed, every single prediction of yours, Mr. Barroso, has been wrong. And dear old Herman Van Rompuy, well, he's done a runner, hasn't he? Because the last time he was here, he told us we'd turn the corner, that the euro crisis was over, and he hasn't bothered to come back and see us. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think we got some stiff composition on our side of the pond, too, uh, for most incompetent leaders. I don't know if we want to let uh, someone in Europe beat us to that one. Uh, but anyway, here here he continues. This is good stuff, and I, I really like the way it sounds with an English accent. Remember, those of you who are premium members, you can actually see uh, uh, these comments as well as hear them. You know, I remember being here 10 years ago and hearing the launch of the Lisbon Agenda. We were told that with the euro by 2010, we would have full employment and indeed that Europe would be the competitive and dynamic powerhouse of the world. By any objective criteria, the euro has failed and in fact there is a looming impending disaster. You know, this deal makes things worse, not better. 100 billion is put up for the Spanish banking system and 20% of that money has to come from Italy. And under the deal, the Italians have to lend to the Spanish banks at 3%, but to get that money, they have to borrow on the markets at 7%. It's genius, isn't it? It really is brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, again, he's pointing out what should be the obvious, that they have a debt problem, and their solution is more debt. And, of course, Italy is also considered a problem, yet Italy is being forced to borrow more money to help out Spain. You know, again, you know, it reminds me of the Superman movie. I, you know, you got me. Who's got you? You you can't. This can't go on indefinitely. They have to put an end to the madness. But nobody in Europe wants to acknowledge the failure and what actually has to be done uh, about it. And it's the same exact thing in America. Unfortunately, maybe we don't have enough people who is poor is eloquently stating this in Congress uh, to, you know, although I'm sure this is falling on deaf ears, just like similar comments in America uh, might be received by the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives or the Senate. But more debt is not the solution. Yet that's the only solution that we're proposing. We want bigger stimulus, which is more debt. We want to borrow even more money so that we can we can suffer the same fate, only worse. here. And here is where he really wraps it up. So what we're doing with this package is we're actually driving countries like Italy towards needing to be bailed out themselves. In addition to that, we put a further 10% on Spanish national debt. And I tell you, any banking analyst will tell you 100 billion doesn't solve the Spanish problem. It would need to be more like 400 billion. And with Greece teetering on the edge of Euro withdrawal, the real elephant in the room is that once Greece leaves, the ECB, the European Central Bank, is bust. It's gone. It it has 444 billion euros worth of exposure to the bailed out countries. And to rectify that, you'll need to have a cash call from Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece and Italy. You couldn't make it up, could you? It is total and utter failure. This ship, the Euro Titanic, has now hit the iceberg, and sadly, there simply aren't enough lifeboats. Very sobering assessment of the European situation. What are the leaders in Europe going to do with their backs to the wall? And, you know, this is, but this is the situation that we're going to be in. It's the same thing. It's the same dynamic, right? We are going to be held accountable for our debts. The fact that we have a printing press doesn't change anything because, hey, they've got a printing press in Europe. They could use it. They're just a little bit reluctant to do it. They're more reluctant to use their printing press than we are to use ours. But the fact that they've got that printing press 
doesn't change the dynamics. It may be, it, it maybe changes the way the losses are borne among the population, among the creditors, but they're just as bad. Believe me, you know, Greece would not be immune from this crisis if it had the drachma. In fact, if Greece leaves the Eurozone and prints drachma, it's going to be worse. Uh, than if they stayed in the Eurozone and had reform. So it doesn't make it better because you can print money. In fact, it makes it worse. First, I'd like to talk about the absurdity and the precedent of the big thing in there that, that got a little bit of coverage, but maybe not as much as I would have covered on it. Right now, this new deal to bail out Spain basically says, Italy, we know you're screwed. We know you're screwed. We know you need your own bailout. But here's what you're going to do. You're going to help us bail out Spain. You're going to loan the money. And Italy goes, but we don't have any money. We, we need money. We're screwed. And they go, you know, what? we're going to make money available to you that you can borrow it, and then you can turn around and loan it to Spain. Okay, I don't know about this. And this is how it's going to work, Italy. We're going to give you the money with an interest rate of 7%, and you're required to borrow it, and you're required to borrow it at 7%. You don't have a choice. Gun to your head, you will borrow money from me and pay me 7% interest on it. Alright? And then you will take the money and you will give it to Spain. But since they're having a hard time right now, you're going to give it to them at a 3% interest loan. You're going to lose 4% on the money. Add to your own debt load and we're going to force you into needing a bailout too. And when you need a bailout, we'll go do it. You see this? This is a Ponzi scheme. This is a complete Ponzi scheme. There's no way that this is sustainable. This British guy put it perfectly. Bloody brilliant, right? With sarcasm and, you know, and the way only... I mean, there's certain things that I, I think we need to have certain British guys around just to say them. Like, we'll tell them what we need said and say, you know, put your own flair on and do it because they do a better job, I think, than any other English-speaking nationality in the world of making the obvious blissfully and painfully, or blissfully, I'm sorry, painfully obvious to everybody. Uh, and, and doing it with a certain uh, air of aristocracy or something, it just really polishes it. This, guy this guy's bloody brilliant. And I, I don't mean it with sarcasm. Absolutely spot on. Uh, but can you see this? This is no different. It's no different than if I came over to your house and said, hey, you know your buddy Tim? And you go, yeah. And I go, he's on hard times. And you go, yeah, I, I, I know. And, well, he needs a loan from you. And you go, I'd, I'd like to help Tim, but I, I need some money myself right now. And, and I said to you, I'm going to fix your problem. I'm going to loan you money, and you owe me, you take the money I owe you, and you loan it to Tim. And you go, I already don't like this, because now I'm effectively becoming the co-signer on, on his debt. That's, that's what they're doing. They're saying, we'll take the, 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 the cloud of Italy, and they'll push it. And it's not the only, only country they're doing it to. They're doing it through multiple countries. And the Germans are the strongest economy, and they're the, the Germans and, and the Britons are kind of the, the source of this money. right? But they, they want a co-signer. So they use the power of the Eurozone to lock these people into these things and say not only are you a co-signer, but you're going to loan the money to Tim for 3%, but you're going to pay me 7 So it's going to cost you 4% to become an involuntary co-signer on the debt. But don't worry, if you get in a hard way, I'll go to Tim and put the same gun in his head. I'll make him borrow from me. <laughs> at 7 and loan you at 3 so it'll be okay that's the deal these idiots are proposing and if you think that like oh Europe's nuts Schiff's right they're not proposing anything 
different here in America. We're doing it maybe in a different way. Maybe it's not that blatantly obviously stupid. It, our solution is just to print money. Now, a lot was just made that there is no QE3. Bernanke came out and said, no QE3. No QE3. I'm not printing money right now. You guys are on your own. I can't fix it. It won't do any good. No money printing. And in the same breath, the Fed says, well, we're buying another $265 million in, in toxic assets. Okay. That's QE3. It's a very tiny one. A couple hundred million dollars, not that much money in the grand scheme of things. But it really is a little mini QE3. In fact, in some ways, it's worse. Let me explain why. In a, 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 a true quantitative easing, what the Fed does is buys the debt that, that is owed to the United States, takes receivership of the bond, and pumps money into the economy that way. So you're Bank of America, and you're holding $100 million in U.S. debt, right? U.S. bonds. And I, the Fed, come in and do a computer entry and say, here's $100 million. And then you can do whatever you want. You can buy more bonds, and you can stimulate lending back to the Fed that way. You can loan it out to your, you know, to, to your customers. You can use it to create more money with, with, uh, with uh, fractional reserve lending. You can do whatever you want with it. It's your $100 million. You've been, you're, you have been repaid the debt. But the U.S. still owes the money, but now we owe it to the Fed. The, the Fed says any profit that they make, right, is returned to the U.S. Treasury, so no harm, no foul. Except the other problem is they keep the interest. Because that's the profit. Or they, they pay the interest back, they keep the principal. All right, so $100 million, if there's like, let's say, uh, $5 million worth of, uh, of interest on it, they give the $5 million back to the Treasury, but they get the $100 million. All right, so it's a, it's a big shell game. But they're pulling these existing real commodities out of the market and putting money into the economy for them. So at least there's a value, uh, a value an underlying interest in debt owed to the federal government that's already happened by the good faith of, a, of someone who's loaned the money, a lender. When they buy a toxic asset, I come to you now in your Bank of America, and you have $50 million in mortgage assets you don't want, delinquent accounts, right? And I say, you know what, we'll just buy that from you. I make the same journal entry. It just makes money out of thin air and give you $50 million. Right? Take the toxic assets out of your hands, and now they can just sit there and be completely toxic, and the Fed will wait till one day when it can auction them off for next to nothing. So QE3 happened. It just was only $267 million. You've been lied to again, and uh, honestly, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, if you caught the little side note when they reported that about a week ago, and you heard the $267 million in buying assets, then you should have picked it up yourself. That is the same thing in principle, except that it's worse, because the bank, instead of being repaid, money that lended in good faith to the government... The, the, the Federal Reserve is using your money and my money to compensate them for losses that they incurred under their own business practices. In other words, it's the textbook definition of a fascist state. The, 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 the losses are public, right? They lost, but they're bailed out yet again. This is another little mini baby bailout. It's a continuation of an existing one. Maybe it's not QE3. Maybe it's not a new bailout because it's just continuing to do what they've been doing, right? You know, maybe I'll, for all I know, that little piece was already agreed to a long time ago. But that's it, it's what it is. The banks lost money on the loans, and they get money from the Fed to cover the loss. 
The Fed doesn't have money. It creates it out of thin air. Every time they create money, they suck value out of the money in your bank account and in your wallet by devaluing the money you already have with inflation. And we pay the bill. But when they make a profit, they get to keep it. I mean, and, and this is the, the shell game. This is the Ponzi scheme that's been running now and, and been getting a bigger and bigger and bigger version of it as we've decoupled further and further from any real commodity backing the, backing the money at all in 1913. We did it in 1913, then we did it in the 30s with the removal of the gold standard uh, to a degree, but we still had an underlying gold standard, and they just changed the valuation of the money against the gold. Then the decoupling from silver with the coinage acts of 1965, the final leaving of the gold standard in 1971 under Nixon, and then the re re revival of gold, gold ownership for U.S. citizens in 1975, which showed the true decoupling. Gold was 35 bucks an ounce in, since 1971. It barely went anywhere. In value until American citizens were able to spend American dollars to buy gold, and then you saw a huge run up, and then a correction and a leveling off through the 80s and the 90s. And, and at this point, though, all of that's behind us. There's nowhere to go from here except more borrowing, more debt, and more fake money entered into a computer. And they have to play that game until they can't play it anymore. They're backed into a corner now. So now the solution is. You force people that don't want to play the game anymore to play it. It's like when you, if you ever play Monopoly, right, and, and everybody thinks it's going to be fun, and then you start borrowing money and mortgaging things and building hotels and everything, and, and all of a sudden it's like three hours into the game, and you're still in the game, but you don't want to be there, and you're just bored with it, right, because it takes so freaking long for somebody to win the game of Monopoly because it's fake money moving all around and there's all kinds of ins and outs. And the more you understand it, the more you can make it a lot. So you just say, you just say they want, you know, somebody that's playing next to you, I'm tired of this game. This game's stupid now. Here, take this and you can have my, my fake money and I'm leaving, right? Well, it's like when you try to leave the game, they put a gun in your head and say, no, you're going to sit here and play the game. By the way, you're playing with real money. That mortgage is to your real house, Or in this case, that's a mortgage against your entire nation, Italy. Italy, you will take the money from me at 7%. You will loan it to Spain at 3%. And you don't have a choice. It's the deal. We're going to do it. We're going to work the deal out by telling you that you're in. And, and when you get in trouble, we'll go to somebody else and make the same deal on your behalf. That's the precedent they're setting here. Now, in America, we can't quite pull that off now, can we? We can't quite do that because we don't have this conglomeration of nations. Let me tell you what they really want to do right now. I'll tell you what they really want to do. They want to pull a rabbit out of their hat in Europe. They want to make this work. Even if, like I said at the beginning of the show, and I think this is a plan, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on until the U.S. election's over. Then borrow from the Federal Reserve. Hopefully, we'll, they'll get rid of all this out of the Fed stuff by then, and they can do it hidden, and then just hide it and just pump money in, and the money will show up like a fart out of thin air, and they'll pump it back in the system and get a system restart for a while. Not to prevent the eventual collapse. Nobody can prevent the eventual collapse. But so that they can hold it up when the dollar falls on its ass and say, see, Europe made it through the crisis and the dollar didn't. 
Regional currencies are the way to go. All of these nations being able to pool their resources, stave off the crisis. Even if the crisis is still coming, they'll say that. They want to move to regional and global currency systems and regional and global taxation schemes. That's part of the whole carbon tax nonsense. And, and this is all interrelated, and I know some people think, well, Jack's on his conspiracy theory stuff now. This isn't conspiracy theory stuff, guys. This is real blatant, easy to understand things if you just, you know, take off the rose-colored glasses and look at it. What do we do? Hey, here's what you do. One, be aware. The fact that you know is better than not knowing. Live your life with, with sanity. Keep your debt low to non-existent. The only thing I would have debt on right now by choice is a house. And the interest rates are so low on houses it makes sense. It really does. And most people can't go out and, how much is that house? 180 grand? One, two, three, whip out the, whip out the bull fold or the checkbook and, and cover it, right? So it's kind of the one place where you're kind of stuck with borrowing. But even on that, pay, pay the debt down as quick as you can. Pay the debt down as quick as you can. Buy within your means. Save cash and save precious metals. Grow your own food. I'm serious, man. The food prices are going to be one of the first things that skyrocket when this thing starts spiraling apart. Because when it comes, when, when, when economic hard times happen, people don't behave logically. The first thing they cut are needs. That's initially what they do. They cut back on needs. And they, and they still spend money on wants. And eventually they get to a point that's so tight that then they have to pull back the wants. And then they realize the needs that they've given up. And then when they cut the wants and they've already cut the needs to the bone, then they start having to really make tough decisions. And they start saying, I can only afford to buy what I really need. And the one thing you know we're going to need every day is food. Without food, we're dead. Without water, we're dead. Well, water will stay cheap for a long time. Food, food's going to get expensive and, and probably sooner than, than maybe even I think in my timelines. I'm still looking at like the big, the big problems really hitting us 2014, 2015, 2016, maybe even further out than that. That there's more time left in this machine then the doomsdayers are willing to admit because they know it's so flawed. They can't understand how it's made it this far. And i got to admit, on some levels, I can't understand how it's made it this far. But as I look at the, the, the chess game these guys are playing and going, how long can they make this really go? And the more they globalize it, the longer they can get away with it. The more people that lose, if it fails, the more people will deny it till the absolute end. There's good news and bad news there. The good news is it gives you more time, you're buying time, so to speak, so you can get prepared. The bad news is the longer it's denied, the more forcefully it's been denied, the more people pulled into the illusion to collectively shove their heads up their ass and not look at it. When it does unravel, the faster it unravels, the, far, the farther it falls, and the harder it hits the ground, and the longer it takes to fix it. But this is why I'm big on precious metals. I don't think you should go cash in your 401k and buy nothing but gold and silver. I really don't. But I think you've got to put some into play. You've got to do it. Because I don't know what else to tell you from a monetary standpoint. But the other thing to do is to put yourself into a lifestyle where you can be as self-reliant, self-sufficient as possible. Because here's the thing. In spite of everything negative that I've said today, and as bad as I'm telling you it's going to be, there will be an economy of some kind. There will be people doing things for a living. There will be people making things for a living. Humans engage in commerce. It's intrinsic to who and what we are. 
So as long as you can stabilize your lifestyle, then you can take time to assess, adjust, adapt, and integrate into whatever the new economy ends up being. Because anybody, anywhere that tells you that they know exactly what it's going to look like, including the people trying to create it on purpose, can't tell you the truth because we don't know. Because there's billions of people on this planet, all with independent thoughts and deeds and actions and senses of morality, and when a crisis comes, everybody's going to fight and battle, and we don't know what's going to win in the end. But we know there'll be something there, and we need to be prepared for it. And what history has shown us is the people that are prepared to deal, and sometimes it's more about being mentally prepared to deal with these adaptations, tend to come out the other side of even some of the worst events in history and thrive. And that can be us. We can thrive in a new future. Even if it happens in a way that we would prefer that it didn't. We can thrive if we're prepared to deal with it. If as it begins to fall apart, as it becomes more evident what's occurring, as it becomes more evident what we should be doing. And what we have to do is take like a broad spectrum approach right now. Right? So like we have to look at it like, like a, an illness. We're taking a broad spectrum antibiotic. And we start to see which symptoms improve. And that starts to tell us what the real illness is going to look like. We have to be broad spectrum with our prepping right now. As the crisis evolves, you'll see more and more which way the, 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 the people in charge are leading, which way the people that are, that are reacting are reacting, where people are, are seeing the crisis go, how people are being overreactive, how people are being underreactive. We can take all that information and we can adapt our approach as we go because we can be sane and calm because we know we have time. We know, okay, I'm going to put food on the table for at least 90 days if we have 90 days worth of food storage, right? Can't throw me out of my house in 90 days, so I'm going to keep the roof over my head. You know, if I can keep the lights on with some modicum of regularity, if I can do those things, even in an all-out crisis, things do begin to reassemble themselves in a new way. And with that understanding, I can adapt to that as it occurs. It doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky-dory. It doesn't mean anything's going to be wonderful. But it means you'll be able to get through it with the right mindset and the right material preparations. But i got to tell you, the case here is it's going to be more about mindset than stuff. It's going to be more about skill set than stuff. It's going to be more about community than stuff. How well will you guys hold it together with the people around you? That's what it's really going to be all about. And we can get through it. We can all get through it together. And it's going to be necessary. And the funny thing about humans is when something becomes necessary, all of a sudden things that were completely impossible, we figure a way out to get it done. My suggestion, though, is what we're going to end up dealing with is a great big boulder. And you want to be beside the boulder or behind the boulder pushing it forward. You don't want to be in front of it getting rolled over, right? And you don't want to be so far behind it that you lose lose pace with everybody else and end up at the back of the line. You want to be in a commanding position. You do that by being awake, being aware, and being prepared. And that's what this show is all about. Living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution is you.